Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. Okay, so I remember doing college visits. Anyone remember college visits when I was my junior year, senior year of high school, going around and you know, trying to trying to experience different colleges. It's where they show you dorm food that you never actually experience the quality of when you're actually in college afterwards, but they're putting on a real good show for the visitors and getting to see campus life and this kind of stuff. But I remember one of the first encounters that I ever had with a Christian on a college campus was someone who had staked himself a little claim, gotten a microphone and a speaker, kind of like an old-fashioned version of what we had here, And he was an apologist and he was there to quote unquote defend the faith. Now, now, to be clear, like that's a good skill. It is right and good to to grasp as much as we can of the faith and and belief we hold to, fair? And so you might expect, have you ever encountered this kind of apologist? It sounds like it should be a good thing, right? It's a good thing to defend your faith, know most about it. Anyone had, had a great experience with this kind of a person? This, mine was not a great experience. He was so angry and was like, that's not what I, know to be true of this thing called Christianity. He was rude. He would mock not just other people's beliefs, but them as a person. Like he'd find something wrong with them physically or that kind of stuff and just berate them for it. And, and he would then like avoid actually hard questions if someone asked. It was just, I, I just watched for a few minutes. It made me sick. But he was there. He said his one goal was to prove Christianity as superior to everything else. And man, superior was definitely the posture <laughs> that he had. And, and so again, I want to be clear, like, let's not swing the pendulum too far. It's, it's not wrong to defend the facts of Jesus's life and, and death and resurrection and reign. That's, that's a good thing. There's a whole genre of, of books and, and teaching out there divided, uh, devoted to the history and geology and even physics and, and this kind of stuff of Christianity. But the problem with all of that is that it stops short. Because Christianity is, is less an intellectual construct and more a faith. A relationship with Jesus is not just this empirical evidence-based thing. It's, it's a relationship, right? And faith is one of those words that gets tossed around a lot. You ever think of what faith actually means? What's faith mean? It's, it's way more than just a, a mental assent to something. Fair? Faith is, is really, truly, if you want to say it like this, faith involves head and heart and hands. It's a very holistic thing. It's more than rational thought. It's more than a construct. If you know much of, of the New Testament, maybe you've heard kind of the way that the, the author of Hebrews defines faith, and this is commonly thrown around. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Where does hope come from? Is hope a, a mental thing? When you yearn for something, is it purely just a head thing? Hope is, hope is coming from the heart. It's a yearning for something. Faith is something hoped for. It's the conviction of things, what does it say? Not seen. And so there's a degree to which, and we all have things we, we hope for, there's a degree to which we all have things we believe in that we can't specifically see or can't specifically define or this kind of thing. But that said, faith is not less than head knowledge. I want to submit instead, faith is rather more than that. And frankly, that's why it's so hard sometimes. Like, are there things about Christianity or things about Jesus that are really hard to wrap our minds around? 
like a resurrection, for example, let's just take an easy one. Like, is it hard to wrap our minds around how that would work? Yeah, absolutely it is. Like, it's understandably hard to, to, to just believe purely on empirical evidence, this kind of stuff, if, if faith was just a head thing. There are things about our faith that are hard, but why do you still believe it? Why do you still hold that faith? I want to submit that for all of us to some degree, whether we think about it like this or not, it's because Jesus is about more than just proof and intellect. He's a holist, there's, there's this holistic reality of faith. Make sense? So, so this fall, here's, here's what we're doing, is that we're trying to see different scenes in the Gospels, mostly the Gospel of John, but in all of these scenes, Jesus shows himself to be truly good news, but good news in different ways to different needs, to different questions, to different areas of brokenness and sin. And so in John 1, what Nicole just read is, is we see Jesus call his first disciples. All of Jesus' disciples are what we would call seekers. We'll come back to that term in a minute. One, Nathaniel, is what we're going to call a skeptic. And so how is Jesus good news to sinners? Well, yes, that too. But for today, how, does he, how is he good news to seekers and skeptics? And, and if he is good news to seekers and skeptics, then, then how is he good news to us, if we would call ourselves seekers or skeptics? Or, or how can we share him as good news to others? And, and here's a hint. Jesus didn't prove himself to be good news by yelling or berating or being rude. Now, can God use the megaphone guy? Can God use the genre of, of, of books to save people? Yeah, God's done far crazier things than that, right? Does God give some people the spiritual gift of winsomely proving Christianity? Yeah, he, he does. And if that's you, man, use your gift well. But I'm going to project on a lot of us. Let's just presume for the sake of today's conversation that proving Christianity is probably not all of our primary gifts. Is that fair? And if that's fair, then the question for today is, how can we follow Jesus's example and display and declare the good news of Jesus to friends, neighbors, family members who are seekers or skeptics? Or if you're a seeker, if you're skeptical, how is Jesus good news to you? That's our question. Fair? So, Father, would you help us to do that? Because as we just laid out, like, I can't convince. We can't mentally ascend far enough to, to believe you to be who you are. So we need your help. I need your help in teaching. We need to receive more from you than from my words. And so I pray that you would be working in our hearts, minds, souls, and strength right now. For us, for our neighbors, it's in your son's name. Amen. All right, so if you weren't here last week, here's how we started this, this conversation that we're having for the entire fall. Uh, we said that everyone on earth is looking for ultimate and truly good news. We all find like lowercase g good news, things that make us feel good, things that let us down, this kind of stuff. But everyone is looking for the ultimate answer. Everyone's looking for ultimate good news. In that sense, everyone, everyone, Christian, non-believer, apathetic, anti-faith, everyone is a seeker. Everyone on earth is a seeker. We're all seekers of hope. We're all seekers of joy. We're seekers of answers. We're seekers of meaning. Everyone is seeking something. In other words, everyone is seeking truth. Everyone's seeking the definition of life, the basis for life. And that's similar for humans in Jesus's time, because it turns out humans are not all that different throughout the generations. For all of history, people have been seeking, seeking truth. It's even part of why we value education and school and books and this kind of stuff. Schools in Jesus's time, though, didn't look like schools today. Way less fluorescent lights than we have today in our schools. Schools would be a, a group of students, small group of students, who would follow a rabbi 
or a teacher or really a guide around. So there was head knowledge, but there was also that head knowledge applied. The rabbi would help them learn, apply their knowledge, apply wisdom. And just like today, there are different theories of learning. There are different philosophies. Just like today, there were also like rankings of rabbis. So families and households would clamor for the, the, the wisest or the most famous rabbi. Perhaps the families with wealth would be able to, to support a rabbi differently. And so again, like again, a lot of similarities to how today works as far as education goes. And, and yet some very different pieces as well. Sometimes, maybe this happens today, some kids wouldn't make the cut. And so they'd get cut by a rabbi or they wouldn't be, be invited by a rabbi to walk with and follow the rabbi. That, that's a little bit of the setting for Jesus calling his first disciple. See, from, from a human point of view, Jesus was this young, uneducated, new man claiming to be a rabbi. He may have had some small reputation, but he offered something to these seekers. And, and here's some of what he offered. The next day, or, or just one day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, What? Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now a couple of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give uh, an account of Jesus' life. A couple of the other Gospels talk about Jesus calling Andrew and Peter. But John focuses in on Philip. But regardless of the gospel, regardless of which of these three the, the writer focuses on, the point is the same. There's these three guys. They're probably young teenagers, pre-teenagers. Maybe they were turning 13 today. They, they'd been rejected or left out by other rabbis. But they're still seeking something. They're still seeking answers. They're still seeking knowledge and wisdom. They're still seeking a guide to train them and teach them, they're seeking a rabbi. They're seeking ultimate truth, just like everyone on earth is. Why are they seeking that? One, it was expected in their time. That they were of the age to, to pursue a rabbi. And two, again, they're seeking truth because they're human. They're seeking answers because they're human. They're seeking the same things that you and I and everyone on earth are always seeking. And so Jesus offers them something they're seeking. Come learn with me. Come walk with me. Come let me guide you. Come let me, let me shape you in wisdom and practice. Jesus says, follow me. And so that word, that, that phrase, two, two simple words meant something far deeper than it would today. Come be my apprentices. I accept you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you what you're hoping for. I'll give you what you're seeking. Three of them immediately follow Jesus. But then they have this other friend. And here's what their other friend says in the middle section there. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Now, pause. Moses and the law and the prophets, that's the entire Old Testament. Hebrew scriptures, we would call it the Old Testament. And so he's saying, hey, this is the man that the Old Testament proves to be true. This is what the prophets were looking forward to. He's referring back to a head knowledge kind of thing to say, we found him. If you took the prophecies, if you took this kind of thing, he's kind of piecing together just by that one phrase, very common phrase, because the Hebrew scriptures, it was their entire life was wrapped around it. We found the one that all of the law and prophets speak to. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, did, did Nathaniel immediately follow like his three friends did? No, he did not. Instead, Nathaniel said to Philip, 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel mocked Jesus' hometown. He was skeptical of Jesus as a rabbi. Again, Philip kind of shared the few facts he knew about Jesus. Again, he gave Jesus, uh, gave Nathaniel, excuse me, the, the proof that he had, and Nathaniel rejected the proof, rejected Jesus. But why? He did it based on what we would call today cultural bias. Is that fair? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was this small backwoods town. E- even today, when we think of like culture shaping, global impacting, truth forming cities, do you think of Waco? Like we were there yesterday. They couldn't do fajitas right. Like, I don't know that I want to follow much wisdom coming out of Waco. Do you think of like rural West Texas? Like th- this is not the kind of place that we go, oh, I'll bet. I'll bet that's where the answer is going to come. We, we have still this bias toward large cities, refined culture, this kind of stuff. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller now, summarizes this mindset and says, for everyone, there's always a right people, a suitable people, a smart people, and then there are, lower your voice, those others. Is that true for you? It's true for all of us. It's true in general. It's true on any topic. And it's important to see this skepticism. My skepticism, your skepticism, anyone's skepticism about anything never just exists in a vacuum. Skepticism doesn't exist for skepticism's sake. It always stems from some sort of bias. There's a religious bias, cultural bias, financial bias, ethnic racial bias, bias. Just even your own experience has caused biases in you, even if you don't know. And within that realm, yes, specifically, people are still skeptical of religion and spirituality. Have you ever seen someone sneer at the idea of church or Bible or Jesus? Of course you have. Have you ever rolled your eyes at church or Bible or Jesus? There are religious practices, there are political affiliations, there's personal pain, there's all these biases that that understandably cause people to be skeptical. But if Jesus is good news, how can he possibly be such if immediately a wall goes up at the very mention of anything about it? So again, bottom line, Nathaniel is a seeker like everyone on earth is, but he's also biased and skeptical and he's rejecting Philip's claim and the proof of Jesus. So so if you're in Philip's shoes, what is your tendency if you share something from your heart and someone rejects it? What do you do? I'll tell you what our culture has taught us to do. We either reject them right back and walk away and say, well, I can never speak to you again, right? Whether online or in person, or we become megaphone guy and go, well, fine, I'm going to prove this superiority to you. That's how we interact with rejection today. Philip, though, is wise and does neither of those things. What does Philip say? Look at the first part of verse 46. Come and see. Come and see. And and here's what you need to know. That word see is more than just come look at something over here. Hey, come look at this ant pile. We did this with our kids yesterday. Come look at this ant pile. Come, come look at this, okay? It's, it's not that kind of, it's a holistic, 
head, heart, hands kind of, it's come behold this, come experience this. Think like, come and see this mountain sunrise in all of its beauty. It's, it's a groom seeing his bride for the first time on their wedding day. It's that kind of come and see. You see the difference? You get the difference? Philip is showing us how we can engage skeptics and how we might even offer good news to friends and families, family members and neighbors who are understandably skeptical about Jesus. And, and here's the bottom line of what he does, is he offers a truth that is greater than our heads, greater than our knowledge, greater than even logic alone. Again, it's not less than that. We'll come back to that. But it's, it's a truth that is greater than heads and knowledge and logic alone. Because if you, like me, trend skeptical, maybe even cynical, then you'll know this to be true. We skeptics must experience a holistic encounter, a behold encounter, to believe something to be true. That's true of Jesus. That's true for anything. If it's bigger than just a, a mental ascent, then there's got to be this holistic experience for me to believe something. In other words, Philip's not showing Nathaniel things about Jesus. Philip is going to introduce Nathaniel to the person of Jesus himself. And guess what Nathaniel's going to experience when he meets Jesus? Not anger, not judgment, but relationship and a wisdom that's greater than any other wisdom on earth. He's going to have an experience that cuts through the skepticism and a relationship that cuts through his cynicism. That's what we see in these next verses. Again, Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. And, and we're going to, this word is traced through here, see and saw and this kind of stuff. Jesus saw Nathaniel. This one is actually just uh, observed him walking toward him. So it can be both. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, we'll come back to this phrase, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Again, that saw is very much related to that no. How do you know me? Even, bef even before you came over here, I already knew. I already beheld, I already experienced. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, okay, he's in. What's, what, what are they all looking for? What have they all been rejected by? So he's claiming Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of the Jews. And Jesus answered him, is it because I said, I saw you under the fig tree that you believe? You will see greater things than these. I think that got messed up. The two bottom circles there should be under see and saw. See saw not under under and things. <laughs> kind of ruins the whole. Jesus sees under, I don't know. No, I'm not going to try. <laughs> so, so again, like Philip, Jesus is not berating Nathaniel's lack of faith. He's not intellectually trying to prove himself to, to be the Messiah. What does Jesus do here? He does two things. One, he affirms the good qualities in Nathaniel. This is the underlying portion up there. By saying you're, there's an, you're an Israelite with no deceit, he's, he's, he's saying you're, you are pure in your faith as much as any person can be. And you're a, you're a truth seeker. There's no deceit in you. You're authentic. 
you, you even use strong language in this. You just, you know, kind of got berated for your hometown. That's not very nice. But Jesus instead says, like, you're, you're forthright and you're transparent. There's no deceit in you. Pause. What would it look like for our friends and neighbors and family members who are not followers of Jesus or who question their belief in Jesus, but who are used to Christians being angry and arguing? What if they instead experienced us and were surprised by our generosity toward them and our compliments and our affirmation of their question of truth? Jesus affirms the good qualities in Nathaniel. And then second, after he affirms them, he follows up by expressing deep care and knownness of Nathaniel. Again, these are the words that are supposed to be circled. That he is saw and knew. Jesus knew Nathaniel. He understood him. He wants good for him. This, this is an expression of, of knownness and care. It's part of what we aim for in our DNA groups. Is everybody deeply known? Is everybody able to be cared for? And apparently, apparently that holistic immediate experience with Jesus was enough to turn this seeker and skeptic into a believer and a follower. Nathaniel says, you, who two verses ago were a reject from Nazareth, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And once Nathaniel's first defense and skepticism and bias are laid down, Jesus promises, hey, there's even more to come. You're going to see and know and behold and experience faith and truth that goes beyond just proof and context and bias. You're going to see a whole new world. Does this make sense? You follow what Jesus is doing here? I want to zoom out for, for just a moment and, and point out a few principles in here. How did Jesus, and, and frankly, Nathan, uh, Philip before Jesus, how do they engage the seeker and skeptic? First, neither tried to argue or intellectually prove their faith as being mentally superior than the other. Rather, they both affirmed the goodness of the seeking and then showed generosity and care and invited Nathaniel into a relationship more than just rational mental assent. Is that fair? Because when people have truly feel heard, if people are truly heard and, and cared for and known and loved, then they experience a degree of proof that is, that is very real, but it surpasses just logic. Does that make sense? This is some of how Jesus and Philip engage the skeptic Nathaniel. Now, to be fair, to address someone, something that someone is thinking here, John 1 is just a summary of this conversation. It's easy to throw out a couple of these principles and go, well, Jesus is God. Of course he can change Nathaniel's mind with one or two sentences of an encounter. It's really easy for us to think of Jesus like the Jedi, right? You want to follow me. I do want to follow you. That's, it's, it's easy for us to think about him like that. But in becoming fully human, Jesus laid down some of his fully God, heavenly, all of eternity powers. And I think some of what Jesus is doing here, that would be a, a last lesson, and we can send these out this week for those of you who are still scribbling. I think he does one more thing here with the seeking and skeptic Nathaniel, and that is what we're going to call addressing the question behind the question. Because again, most debates about faith, most apologists, that kind of stuff, we, they stay at the head level 
they, they interact as if it was a doctor treating a deep tissue wound with a Band-Aid. There's always something going on under the surface. There's always bias. There's always some experience that shaped us. There's always some deeper question. Jesus finds the question behind the question. Again, behind every skeptic and cynic is a seeker because we're all seeking some. So, so where do you and where do your unbelieving friends, family members, and neighbors seek truth and answers and, and good news? How does Jesus affirm you and care for you and invite you? And how can you in turn affirm others and care for others and invite people to Jesus to find a better source of truth and answers and good news? Like, here's an example. Everyone has some values, right? We don't all hold exactly the same values. Different worldviews shape different values. So the question behind the question might be, well, what's the basis for, the, for that value? There's a French philosopher. He's got a great little book called The History of Thought. It is, I'm going to go really nerdy on you for just a few minutes. Can you follow me? History of Thought. His name is Luc Ferry. It looks like Luck Ferry, for the record, which is very different. Um, here's how, you, you know, his na name looks. Luc Ferry. Uh, Luck Ferry, French philosopher. Here's how he addresses some of these values. For example, every Christianity would say, God would say, every single human being, regardless of talent or wealth or race or gender, is made in God's personal image and therefore has dignity and rights. True? So for some of our folks who look at Christianity and go, well, it is completely anti-human rights, what, what Ferry is implying is like the very basis for human rights for us comes from the fact that we believe that everyone's made in the image of God. The question behind the question is, wh where do you find your, your basis for human rights if it's something different? Without that aspect of Christianity's teaching, this is a little bit of a summary, the philosophy of human rights to which people love today, which we subscribe today, would never have established itself, according to the history of thought by a Frenchman so he's got to be right because he has a cool accent. That makes sense? Or the, the teachings of Christianity revolutionized pagan Europe by stressing the dignity of the person, including the primacy of love, including love toward enemies and the care for poor and orphans. So, so where does our pursuit of justice come from? It's not just something somebody woke up with and go, I think I should love orphans. There's a question behind the question. There's a motive behind the value. We could say the same thing of of, of every, of, of religion, every other philosophy in the world says that to find God, to improve yourself, to whatever, you have to do something. Christianity, though, says you can't attain enough perfection or strength or goodness. And so God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the good news. That's the gospel. This makes sense? The question behind the question asks, why do you believe what you believe? How can we affirm and care and invite people to see Jesus as a better motive for the beliefs and values and a better answer to whatever it is they're seeking? And, and again, hear me. Let me take it one step, one step more nerdy. We don't get to take logic out of the picture. This is not an anti-logic. It's not, it's not experience in the just nostalgic, fuzzy kind of sense. It's just more of a holistic logic. It's more of a holistic experience. Again, faith is not less than rational thought. Faith is more than rational thought. So Greek philosophy, again, told you we were going nerdy. 
would say that there are two types of truth. Anyone know any philosophers? Logos and telos. You've heard of these. Logos is the rational, moral order of the universe. It's the truth that brings order to the universe. Telos is the purpose and the reason we exist within that order. Okay, should I say it again? Logos is the order of the universe. Telos is the purpose and reason we exist within that order. Which of those is more true? Which of those do you seek more? The second? Here's the reality. Everyone seeks both of those things. Whether in some moments more or less, whether some stories have shaped us to seek A or B more, like we both want both. Or we, we, we all want both. We all want order, some reason the universe exists, and then some purpose that we exist in it. They're intertwined. And this is how Greek philosophy talks about. This is why everyone is a seeker. Wired in us is a desire for order and purpose. Is that fair? We want both order and purpose. And, and so which type of truth is Jesus? Order or purpose? Here's the genius of what the Gospel of John does. Because we're in the first chapter of John. This is one of the first things that Jesus does. But John opens his gospel with these words. They're familiar. You see them at Christmas a lot, but they matter beyond Christmas. In the beginning was the word. Now, we said last week that the word word in the Bible doesn't usually mean the Bible, even though it's how we use it today. The word word in the Bible means what? The gospel, the good news, the, the, the proclamation of God whether his actual word or his son incarnate, okay? You know what the word, the Greek word for that is? It's logos. So in the beginning was purpose and order and good news and gospel. That's what John is saying here. In the beginning, and you see him kind of recap some of Genesis 1 where God made everything through Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus, God incarnate, the very proclamation and good news that gives purpose and shape to everything on earth. In the beginning was that. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So order, logos. But then what happens? The Word, God's Word incarnate, the good news, that Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see what John is doing here? Only Jesus, only the Gospel, only the good news is the foundation and order, right order of the universe. But that Jesus, that gospel, that good news came to be in relationship with us. Jesus is the only order of the universe, and Jesus is also the greatest purpose. A relationship with Jesus is the greatest holistic truth in the world, is what John is saying. Jesus shows skeptics and seekers and Nathaniel and us that truth is more than just this construct and rational ascent is not less than that. It's more than purpose and truth 
starts with a relationship with God through Christ. I know that is super heady. Let me give you an image that makes it a little bit less Greek. Maggie and Travis, my two youngest kids, have recently been real into trust falls at home. You know what these are, right? Like do this and then just fall backwards. And you have some trust and faith in something that you cannot see, to go back to Hebrews 11, right? That someone is going to catch you, okay? And outside of just a couple of times when I thought it was really funny, I met their trust. I met their faith. Now, what is it that, that made them believe they could trust me? that made them believe they could put their faith that I would catch them. It was not me sitting down and walking them through the evidence. It was not me giving them some empirical truths or this kind of stuff. It's that their experience with me over 11 and nine years respectively have taught them that they can trust me. Now, not constantly, I'm not perfect, but consistently, I think they've learned that they can trust me. If that's true for imperfect dad with some kids, it's our constant expectation and the constant promise of Jesus toward not just his people, toward all people, whether they believe it. So bottom line, if you or a friend, neighbor, family member are skeptical or seeking, Jesus is the answer. He's, he's the good news that we're all seeking. So could we lay aside our bias and consider the greatest truth on earth might require us to seek more than just head knowledge. After all, none of us are just brains on sticks. We're all designed more holistic, and, and truth and faith is more holistic than that as well. I love, if you've been around long, you know this, I love mysteries. I love spy novels. There's this great line in Sherlock Holmes that says, when you eliminate, when you've eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. A lot of today's conversation reminds me of this. Is it improbable that a man would raise from the dead? Yeah. Is it improbable that X happened or Y happened? Yeah, absolutely. But, but if you take away everything else, then what remains must be the truth. If you or a friend, neighbor, family member, or a seeker, seek honestly. If you're a skeptic, don't let some bias block you from the greatest truth or greatest answer like it originally did with Nathaniel. To make this real tangible, in, in this week in, in your DNA and the booklets that we handed out last week, you're going to be asked, what was your experience with Jesus? How did Jesus meet you? How did, he, how did he sound like good news to your specific story, to the truth that you were seeking? And then who can you affirm and care for and invite into your experience with Jesus? But I want to close with a quote from Dr. Tim Keller, who is really helpful in shaping a lot of this as he had decades of engaging skeptics and seekers in New York City. This is the invitation he would often give. He says, if you, like Nathaniel, are willing to admit the depth of your need to discover bigger answers to the big questions that you're getting, and if you're willing to stop rolling your eyes at Christianity, I would invite you to consider the man who came from this backwoods hodunk unimportant, rejected place called Nazareth. Okay. Yeah, Father, would you meet us there? Would you help us to see your goodness? Would you help us to believe? Yes, in our heads, Lord, not, not opposed to our heads, but, but beyond that even. 
Would you help us to see you for who you truly are? God, for those of us who are skeptics and cynics, would you meet us in a way that is so caring and invitational and loving that we can't help but consider? And for our friends, neighbors, family members who are also sinners, keepers, sinners and, and skeptics and seekers, would you meet them as well and give us the words and posture to engage them well? In your son's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com.